economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Dr. Russ McCullough, uh, founder of the Gortney Institute, and have a special episode today. Uh, I'm here with six uh, students in Fairleigh, Vermont, at Milton Friedman's former summer home, and we've been spending the last four days together talking about capitalism and freedom and free to choose, two of uh, Milton Friedman's uh, influential books, especially to the like I like to do economics to the masses, um, especially the free to choose also was a uh, video, a 10, a 10 part video series that aired on PBS back in 1980. And uh, we've heard a lot of timeless uh, concepts that are still resonating today. And so um, joining me is the vice president of development of the free to choose network. Jeff Kelman is with us. And uh, so he's going to get a chance to to chime in too. I'll let him uh, say a little bit about his job and what the Free to Choose Network is all about. So we're going to kind of work through some of the topics of these chapters because we've been, we've been really having some great discussions over Friedman's concepts. And I encourage you, if you like what you hear, to learn more. You can pick up these books fairly inexpensively on your favorite uh, place. It might be with billionaire Jeff Bezos. Uh, you can go on Amazon and pick them up fairly inexpensively, or you could go to a good old-fashioned bookstore in probably downtown little town America and uh, find one of these books as well. Because And they've also been published in other places. Some of our listeners around the globe, uh, These bo- both of these books have been published in uh, multiple languages. I'm not sure how many, but the, here at the library, at the summer home, there was a stack of, it looked like 20 different languages. So it was really widely read around the world. So let's start off with Jeff. If you could tell us a little bit about the Free to Choose Network, uh, welcome to the podcast. Sure, Russ. Uh, thanks. This is always beautiful to be up here at Capitaf in Vermont and the, the summer home of Milton and Rose. It's, it's, it's a wonderful spot to have these conversations too around uh, these two books, Capitalism and Freedom and Free to Choose. And uh, one little known fact uh, about Free to Choose, the book actually, is that the series that um, the company I work with, Free to Choose Network, and our subsidiary, uh, isit.org, actually made the show that you mentioned, the 10-part series, before the publication of the book. And it was the book that came after, even though the book did end up selling, I think, somewhere in the range of a million copies, uh, the show did very well as well and was well-received by number of celebrities and millions of people all over the world, obviously. And we've heard some little tidbits that uh, Milton and Rose Friedman were able to build this place because of some of the royalties that came off of their first book, Capitalism and Freedom, which I believe was 1962, I think. I I think that's right, 1962. And uh, that would make sense for the name, of course, Capitaf, so as a portmanteau between between capitalism and freedom, for for sure. Yes. And (laughs) so we have a beautiful view on the, the tops of the mountains here overlooking Vermont. So... Um, I wanted to get started here on chapters one and of uh, both books. And Jeff, if you could let us know a little bit about what, what is economic freedom and political freedom? That was the, the first chapter here in the Capitalism Freedom book. Yeah, so, so my reading of, of chapter one of Capitalism and Freedom, the relation between economic freedom and political freedom, is really, really interesting in terms of how prescient 
Milton was and how pertinent this is today. I mean, Milton literally on the first paragraph of the first page talks about the chief contemporary manifestation of this idea is the advocacy of, quote, democratic socialism (laughs) by many who condemn out of hand the restrictions on individual freedom imposed by, at the time, totalitarian socialism in Russia and were persuaded that it is possible for a country to adopt essential features of Russian economic arrangements and yet to ensure individual freedom through political arrangements. And then essentially, systematically, Milton is, is able to go through in his argument and say how it's simply not the case, that you cannot have some semblance of political freedom or some semblance of economic freedom in perpetuity uh, without the other, that you really need both. And sadly, we might be seeing this unfold a little bit today with uh, places like Hong Kong and others. But I mean, very frequently, we've also seen the arguments come up in the Scandinavian countries of how, you know, look, they can have a little bit of both. They can have everything here. And uh, actually, Free to Choose Network a couple of years ago put out a a documentary that was aired nationally on public television called Sweden, specifically outlining how there's more nuance to that story and that it's not quite as black and white as the as the counter argument might make it or, or, or rather that it really does involve this this argument that Milton's making that's saying that you need both political freedom and economic freedom and even more to the point these things are not quite as separate as it, it's been argued they really are one and the same thing in a large degree yeah, it's, uh, I've heard it as a three-legged stool and they're the interdependence. Uh, people have tried to uh, disentangle uh, the economic freedom, political freedom, and uh, like uh, religious freedom, for instance, is another one that's thrown in there. And so they all kind of have this interdependence with each other. And so uh, you can't just have one, one particular one type of freedom doesn't seem to be the secret sauce to alleviating society's problems might just uh, need a little bit more of different things to, given the circumstances. So, and then the, the first chapter of uh, Free to Choose is the power of the market. And as an economist who's been advocating uh, market-based solutions for a number of years, I mean, people's original thoughts are usually, oh yeah, I like the free market, uh, but, and there's always a but because there's this idea of chaos or greed or evil or something is going to ultimately ruin uh, markets. And uh, part of that misunderstanding, I think, comes in from uh, not really having a a good enough appreciation for the importance of competition. And again, the word competition has a misunderstanding because people tend to think that it's an NBA championship game here of Bulls versus Pacers. And if one person wins, another team loses uh, what we call a zero-sum game. And that's not the case with the market system, that we actually have win-win trades uh, going on all the time. And so there's plenty of room for both parties to win, multiple companies to be profitable, multiple consumers to have various benefits of uh, numerous amounts in the prices that they pay. And so the market system is this amazing interaction of thousands of consumers and potentially thousands of producers. And the prices then just reflect their preferences. And those prices move like, uh, I I like to think of it as music changing according to events that happen. So if some things become more 
scarce maybe due to a disease, uh, a pandemic, if you will. All of a sudden, the prices of some things will rise and the prices of other things will fall. And that will change people's behavior depending on the price. Some people who value it very high will still pay the higher prices. And that'll cause people to economize on the good that's becoming scarce and move into another good that might be a decent substitute depending on their uh, diverse preferences. So it's really an amazing thing what uh, Friedrich Hayek called a, a marvelous, uh, the marvelous market. I mean, it, once you really have a full understanding of it, I think it's hard not to be just awestruck by its beauty. And so I think that's part of what Milton Friedman has been able to do is to show the power of the market, this first chapter, uh, really starts to highlight that individual behavior can lead to some good outcomes. And then really the, the rest of the book starts to go through circumstances where government involvement might lead to outcomes that aren't as desirable as what a free market would have been. And so those are some of the discussions that we've been having the last four days. And what I decided to do with this episode is we had each of our students uh, take the lead on kind of explaining a chapter. And so we're going to work through the podcast with just some brief comments by the student who had the lead on there. And then maybe some other people might chime in with a few comments on uh, what they thought about that. So, and then we'll do some introductions with our students as we go. So our first up is uh, CJ. Uh, you had chapter two, and you actually had chapter two for both of these, didn't you? you, you I did, is, yeah. This is before we uh, started getting a little more clever on it. So <laughs> yes, uh, you had a double duty. So yeah, talk to us, CJ. Awesome. So my name is Connor Keen. I'm a senior studying finance and economics at Grand Canyon University. Uh, and I'm from Seattle, Washington, originally. So focusing on capitalism. Now they believe in free markets in Seattle. Oh, definitely. Right? Is that yeah. that's like complete uh, <laughs> free, free market, market bill, bill yeah. right? Okay. No, I just had to throw <laughs> no, that. No, but there. chapter okay. two is the uh, the role of government in a free society. So chapter two continues to discuss Friedman's theory about the relationship between a society's capitalist arrangement and individual freedom. This chapter focuses more on the limits of government intervention to preserve maximum freedom for the citizens. And Friedman acknowledges that a, a small amount of government intervention is definitely necessary. And I love his example because I was a baseball player of an umpire in a baseball game. They should lay a template to regulate free activity. Uh, and then on top of this, Friedman acknowledges that government should deal with monopolies and neighborhood effects. So this is kind of a short sum of, of chapter two there. Yeah. Yeah, I think the important feature there is that it's not no government, mm -hmm. right? Everybody, not everybody, that's not quite fair, but we seem to have this either or idea that, oh, if you're for free markets, that means no government. And that's so far from the truth. Uh, the umpire example was great that we need to have laws that protect individuals to do what they want to do for the most part, as long as they're not infringing on others' identical rights. And that uh, hits to the heart of economic freedom and their ability to buy, sell, trade, and give away uh, charitably or otherwise. And so having a, a good court system and a police system that enforces these rights that we have. And uh, that is uh, an important element of a well-functioning market. So, and then we kind of rode into the road to serfdom was our next thing. And that was actually me on, on that one. So this was just one chapter we did from Hayek's famous book, uh, The Road to Serfdom. And in that, he really looks at how every country's in a different spot on that road. Serfdom was 
not a place I think most people want to know if they've done a little history where we have basically kings and queens and rich people and a whole bunch of people that have nothing, borderline slaves or indentured servants anyway, um, not having rights to property and so forth. And so Hayek's big claim was that if we're not careful, if we don't have markets and individual freedom, then we will slowly be on the march towards that type of regime. Um, more commonly held property, socialist ideas that people have, was the road to serfdom. And uh, certainly he wrote that in 1946, right on the heels of uh, Adolf Hitler and his activities over in Germany that uh, we're all aware of. But it was more subtle than that. We've seen this more recently with Venezuela. Cuba would be another example where you um, have people who come to kind of liberate people. Fidel Castro uh, is probably a pretty good example. And then they start to get the power and they find out that central planning is a little more difficult than it looks like. Even if you're the most kind-hearted person um, and completely benevolent, the benevolent dictator model has not fared well for any country that I'm aware of. And the reason is that it can often pass down the line to somebody who's not maybe as good as the benevolent one. That's a little bit of Venezuela's old story. Uh, Jeff? No, I was just going to touch on that, that I love saying that what I think a lot of political economists may acknowledge is that the most efficient and perhaps in many ways, arbitrarily saying the best government is in fact a benevolent dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But what is the one single flaw to a benevolent dictatorship? It's that it cannot be, and it can't exist permanently. There's a son, there's a daughter, <laughs> there's, <laughs> right. a, there's a line of succession there's that won't ask <laughs> precisely. Yes, yes, yeah, good point. And, and also, I think part of Hayek and even Friedman in this book points that we're, we're all kind of little socialists at heart. I think we're born to a family and mom and dad might have been great and they treated us well. And when we needed guidance, we went to them. And so this idea of the family is truly socialist at heart. Mom and dad probably had a pretty good idea of my two brothers. It was Russ Berry and Chad. And if we did something bad or we needed something, uh, they knew us well, right? And so the, the socialist model of the family is what we, what we tend to grow up on. Not everybody, of course. We have uh, people who uh, don't have one parent or both. And, and so we all come from a different set of circumstances. But certainly people start to extend that and to say, well, why can't government work that way? Why can't we all own everything together and share everything together? And so these are some of the important lessons that we learn from Hayek's book is, and of course, Milton Friedman's two books. So Colson, you had a, a chapter four here on capitalism and freedom. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. For sure. I'm Colson France. I'm a student at Arizona State Law School in Phoenix, Arizona. And chapter four is titled International Trade Arrangements. And it goes immediately into talking into the monetary system that was in place in the United States at the time Friedman wrote this book. And you might wonder why, why are we going to the monetary system immediately for international trade arrangements? But it's because for international trade, in order to buy a, a good or something from another country, you actually have to convert, uh, say, your U.S. dollar into the uh, foreign currency to buy that good. So that's why he, he starts there. And at the time of writing, the U.S. actually had this, this gold support system for the U.S. dollar that he spent some, some time describing and at the, near the end of the chapter, he proposes that there's only two mechanisms that are consistent with uh, free market and free trade as to how currency is regulated. 
One is a fully automatic international gold standard, which means that every dollar or uh, unit in some currency would be backed by an equivalent amount of gold. So I'd be sitting somewhere you could say, rede redeem your dollar for the gold. And the other one is a free floating exchange rate, which would mean that the price of that currency would change as that currency is traded um, today in like the Forex market. And, and that's cool our thing. system today. Well, that's right? the cool thing. Yeah, is that's yeah. the system today. And so some of Friedman's ideas have been adopted and, and implemented. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, influential on that because uh, things really did get messed up in the different ways. Well, Brittany, you had our uh, The Anatomy of Crisis, which kind of added on a little bit more about that. To introduce yourself and tell us a little more. Well, my name is Brittany Anglin. I'm currently a junior at West Virginia University with a major in economics and a minor in political science. And my chapter was The Anatomy of Crisis. And Friedman opened up by first talking about the Great Depression and what caused it, which was a series of bank runs that ended up leaving the economy into the state that it was in. And he heavily criticized the Federal Reserve and said that they had made it worse. And he did not understand why they were given more power after the Great Depression <laughs> because they had made it so much worse. And he had closed off by saving, saying government is the major source of economic instability. And he heavily believed that if the government minimized their um intervention in a lot of economic matters, a lot of these things that happened would have never happened to begin with. Yeah, so he was really, um, that really probably what he's most famous for was his criticisms of, of the Federal Reserve. Um, he was an advocate of a fixed monetary policy where we wouldn't have the discretion. Uh, you all have heard on the radio that the Fed has moved to lower interest rates or raise interest rates or how are they going to do this? Or, and uh, he really was one of the early ones that pointed to the flaws of the Fed, probably the thing that really led to his Nobel Prize in economics, and that uh, we should have... Um, take that discretion out of their hands um, and, and have that be more fixed. And this idea of uncertainty really led other economists to do some other studies on uh, how expectations are an important part of the economy and that sort of thing. So uh, Jonathan, so you rolled into this cradle to grave chapter and free to choose what was going on there. Introduce yourself first, I guess. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jonathan Rawayo. I am a student at Ottawa university in Kansas and uh, I am from, Zimbabwe, but I am a Mexico resident. Um, for me, this chapter is very interesting because um, it was chapter four, Cradle to Grave, because looking at it from uh, even outside, um, you know, uh, he's, uh, Freeman is uh, he's speaking about the systems that were in place, uh, that the government has put in place to help uh, low income or uh, people who are supposedly struggling, but uh, end up hurting them most. So uh, these systems like welfare, social security, you know, public security. So uh, again, I say I found it very interesting because looking at it on the outside, the first thing you say is because this is about um, limiting government, uh, most arguments made against this is uh, don't you care about, you know, helping the poor and uh, is it the government's place to do that? Some of the discussions we had were very interesting because we kind of, in the book, it's got this very interesting diagram that shows how people spend money or how efficient people spend money efficiently. And we see that when you spend someone else's money and using that money to someone else, it's not as efficient because you're not, you don't have the complete information to, to do so. Whereas when you're spending your own money on yourself, you know, your likes, you know, your tastes. So 
and it's your money you worked hard to get it so you're more efficient in that way so we see many times that government is trying to to you know take these taxes to help uh people with the best of intentions with the best of intentions oh and it's always with the best of intentions i mean it starts off with the best of intentions but end up you know well, that maybe not always. That might be a little too strong. We've got a few politicians that might have <laughs> tried to line their pockets over time, but uh, for the most part, for the most part, we'll yeah, always, for, for sure, the most part, for sure, uh, with the best intentions. But uh, you know, government won't have enough information to 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 do so efficiently. So um, it was it was a very interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, so, Connor, uh, you had Chapter 5 here on Free to Choose, Created Equal. What uh, was going on there? Yep. So, I'm Connor Diek. I'm from the Auto University in Arizona. And then Chapter 5, Free to Choose, and I mean, Created Equal, kind of starts off and focuses on, like, the balance between, like, equality and liberty. Or, like, the first main, like, categories, like, the, either, like, the equality before God or personal equality, in which it's kind of focusing on, like, everyone is going to be created different with different values and different characteristics themselves, but their own like independent value should be equal throughout. Then next category kind of going down into is going to be the equality of opportunity, or this doesn't mean in the literal sense, like everyone's going to have the same opportunities, but it's more focusing on like, there shouldn't be like obstacles standing in your way, preventing you from getting either like a position or like a possible different, actually even just a possible opportunity down the road. And the final one is, which kind of dif- differentiates from the rest is going to be the equality of outcome. Cause this one kind of, unlike the other two, it kind of this outcome and more limits the Liberty rather than kind of like promoting it as with the other ones. So like beforehand, as you like the quality rises, so does the liberty. Where in this one, like the equality of outcome rises, the liberty is what's going to be limited in the same time. Yeah, Friedman's kind of famous for a quote that I like A society that pursues equality before freedom will have neither, but a, a society that pursues freedom before equality will have generous amounts of both. He readily acknowledges that. We're not going to have equal outcomes. In fact, even if we did a perfect redistribution of the income, how long would it take before that's unequal again? And so it's really uh, not the best place to be. And uh, so there's um, interesting nuances. I encourage you to read the book on uh, this equal opportunity idea. There's so much cheap talk in the media today on what exactly that means. And so I think a lot of this is from a, from a, standpoint of the law, how is our government set up that that we have all this baseline and granted, you know, Donald Trump's uh, kid has some uh, opportunities that are beyond what other people have. So uh, there can be opportunities that go beyond for other people, but at a baseline, we have uh, people that are all treated equally under the law. Again, I'm not saying that's true, but I'm saying that's our goal or objective is to have uh, everyone have an equal treatment of the law. So even if you are a privileged person in one way, shape, or form, we have this element of fairness that comes through this uh, equal opportunity idea more than just looking at the outcomes and thinking we'll achieve something better uh, through redistribution. And so he goes through a number of examples where redistribution uh, has caused um, some problems in a variety of ways, where we concentrate power in a few hands to determine what housing should look like, what food should look like, what welfare should look like, what education should look like. 
And his argument is that those are all desirable things and he agrees with that. But how we get there uh, might be better to just leave things alone. And I know that's a, a big argument that on the face of it, when you hear it, you're like, well, that ain't going to work. Uh, because again, I think that's our natural inclination. But uh, Friedman really makes some amazing arguments and you certainly might not agree with them all, uh, but they are, they are in there. And I, I think uh, fairly reasonable to understand. So this looks like a good time for our, our first break. Um, since this is the Faith and Economics podcast, uh, after we get a break, I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at uh, what was Milton Friedman's faith or lack thereof. So we will be back in just a few minutes. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so if you have any questions from things that you've heard, you can email your questions to russ.mccullough at ottawa.edu. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ today. All right, well, welcome back. I left you with a cliffhanger on Friedman and his faith. And so he was raised Jewish. I did a, I, I read some stuff here, but I wasn't completely sure. So this is coming from Wikipedia, unresearched uh, as usual, but I, I suspect it, it makes sense from the pieces I've put together before. So there was a 2007 article in Commentary Magazine so his parents were moderately observant Jews, but Friedman, after an intense burst of childhood piety, rejected religion altogether. Uh, he described himself as agnostic, which makes sense to me. So someone who's agnostic doesn't really say there's not a God or there is a God. It's just that there isn't enough evidence <laughs> to make up your mind. Um, so Friedman was always somebody that turned to the real world for empirical evidence and um, as we say at the beginning of our show, uh, faith is something that you have that's a little bit of a leap. You don't have that evidence. And so um, Friedman just kind of left that out there. And uh, that makes sense from uh, his approach to just about everything in life was to uh, turn to the data. And if there wasn't data there, then it was just something that he's not going to deny, but at the same time, uh, wasn't ready to accept so we're going to continue our discussion on our material here. And Connor, CJ, for our purposes here, uh, <laughs> you had uh, chapter seven. What was that all about with capitalism and freedom? Yeah, so capitalism, freedom, chapter seven was capitalism and discrimination. So in this chapter, Friedman argues that a free market society tends to decrease the level of discrimination that individuals face on the basis of features such as skin color or sex, for example. Also, Friedman argues that various government laws that are designed to discourage these actually fail uh, and almost inherently limit people's freedom. So he uses fair employment 
right to work and school integration laws as some great examples. Uh, from there, he continues to talk about self-denying ordinances and free speech, explaining his opposition to limitations uh, on bigoted speech. Specifically, I think he states uh, that he believes that making exceptions to the right of free speech begins a slippery slope to banning it altogether. And I know that we had some really great discussions. Just really interesting how this was written in 1962, I think we agreed <laughs> upon, and just how... Uh, it's, it's still so relevant today, and it yeah. made so many discussions. I mean, it was right it. on the headlines probably yeah. last week and the week before <laughs> and the last month or two anyway. So yeah. uh, certainly some interesting material. I, I, I don't, really don't believe for one second that Milton Friedman was racist at all. It was just on how racism gets dealt with. And he certainly believed that um, markets would probably end up being a better way to handle that than some of the government interventions. I think he would argue, if he was alive today, that some of the things we're seeing that has gone on in uh, 2020 is a result of government intervention rather than having a market. And I know that's a loaded thing to say, and um, we could probably spend a couple episodes in all doing that. But I really encourage you readers to look at that particular chapter if you want to see what his ideas. Um, the thing that was neat about Melton is he really, with these two books especially, was more about putting out ideas. Like, let's, let's think about these issues um, he was a master of thinking about unintended consequences, of doing things one way or the other, and astute at uh, individual incentives and behavior of people under certain, you know, institutional frameworks, certain rules, things get come down the pipeline, how uh, changes in behavior could lead to worse outcomes than if we had not done anything at all. And so he makes some arguments there uh, that I think are worthwhile for everyone to check out and read. So, Liz, you had Free to Choose Six. What was that all about? Hi, yeah, this is Liz Lovato. I'm uh, coming from Ottawa University, Kansas. I'm studying business economics and finance. I also live in Las Vegas currently. Um, so, Free to Choose Chapter Six just introduces uh, some of our failures in the educational system. Uh, parents are complaining about the quality of their kids' education, and the taxpayers are also complaining about the growing cost. He also goes on to talking about the problems within the elementary and secondary education. He argues that because of the government, they actually reduce the quality and diversity of schooling. Um, he then backs it up with statistics, and uh, if you actually read the chapter, it actually says the number of students went up 1%. Total professional staff went up 15%, teachers went up 14%, but supervisors went up 44%. And it just, you know, tells you how the system is actually failing us. Um, education has been controlled by government. And he just expresses, expresses that as students and parents, we can't choose what school to go to unless we pay for a private school. And, um, you know, it just seems like in today's world, sometimes the poor can't afford it. You know, some of our parents also cannot afford, you know, giving us that, you know, good education. So the expense that we pay is really high. And as we see in today's world, education is so valuable. So um, he proposes some of the solutions. And actually, one solution he actually proposes is to improve the quality of institutions and promote greater equity in the distribution of such taxpayer funds that are used to subsidize higher education and using uh, voucher funds. Yeah, so that voucher idea is something, depending listener on what state you're in, um, it's done more so in some states than others, uh, but was to basically allow students uh, a tax credit, uh, what he called a voucher. So if 
on average, we spend $5,000 per pupil, then uh, little Johnny and little Susie, of course, along with their parents, have a little piece of paper that says they can go to whatever school they want. They are free to choose. It doesn't matter where they live, if they live on the bad side of the tracks or the good side of the tracks, uh, they can bring that piece of paper and get an education. And so it, it creates an element of competition. So the charter school system is a reflection of uh, some of the things that have changed since Milton got into this work and promoted it uh, way back in 1980. We've seen more and more improvements in how we might think differently about school, that it doesn't have to come down the pipeline of the government-provided system uh, that we are all uh, accustomed to. So kind of pushing the envelope on thinking about some market-based principles. It's certainly not getting the government completely out of education, Uh, but rather thinking about ways we can plan for competition is one of Hayek's quotes that have always stuck out to me. If we're going to do central planning, let's plan for competition. And so uh, having government set up something to where there can be some private alternatives. Uh, Jeff, you have a comment? Yeah, sure. I I think this chapter and more broadly Milton's thinking sort sort of highlights how if you're going to have a government program, and if you're going to have government spend on X, on something, then he'd say, I think, that, as, that the bigger issue is not just whether or not government ought to be spending on that X, but rather if people really, really felt they were getting their money's worth, people would be a lot happier about those tax dollars being spent in the first place. Now, obviously, we could get into whether they ought to be in X or Y or Z, and there's a whole host of things they probably ought not to be in. But at the very least, if they are, if people are getting the absolute best value and are very happy about it, and you've surveyed you know, everyone you could, and they all said, wow, yeah, I'm really loving my experience going to the DMV or whatever, then you, you would see a very different, different uh, atmosphere and different political uh, conversation around government. And this absolutely applies to schools and how I think he felt that people did not feel and perhaps still do not feel they're getting their money's worth. Yeah, and I, I want to mention right now a, a person that was instrumental in putting the, the TV series together was Bob Chisseter that uh, started this whole free-to-choose business. And unfortunately, Bob wasn't able to be with us uh, today, but I'm hoping um, to get him on a different podcast altogether. So uh, listeners, you'll get to listen to Bob, and he's full of Milton Friedman stories and insights and whatnot, so uh, we'll get a lot more of that, but I wanted to make sure uh, we mentioned how instrumental uh, he was in bringing this together because um, it wasn't exactly Milton's idea to put together a 10-part series on all of these things. Uh, it was really uh, some amazing contributions um, from Bob, and then ultimately uh, uh, creating this free-to-choose network that has a lot of other educational content that has currently been in real high demand with COVID because uh, they have a lot of interesting video content and short things that uh, teachers uh, can use um, as they try to get uh, various topics out to students. So Jonathan, I think you're up next here um, with who protects the consumer? What was going on with that chapter? Yeah, chapter seven, who protects the consumer. And um, this uh, chapter was about how government regulation in the name of the consumer, where it's led, uh, he argues that the market system is imperfect, that it's, its regulations end up protecting the industry rather than protecting the consumer. So these, uh, an example uh, that we did discuss was the FDA, how it's, uh, it's a system that's meant to protect, you know, 
you know, the food industry, but, and it's very easy to, to defend what that uh, system does, which is good. Uh, but he does pose the question that what we don't see or what the system is failing to, to, um, you know, to help the consumer and, 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 and that uh, we, we spoke a little bit about uh, the drugs, uh, the drugs that are not going through. And uh, for right. me, that was how something... people miss some treatments yeah. and certainly related to COVID. Now all of a sudden, Oh, we don't need the FDA. Just figure out how to solve COVID. And well, wait, didn't we need you to protect us from bad stuff? Well, it's different now. There's different circumstances. Oh, really? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Definitely. And that's something that was interesting to me because having the government uh, have its hand in this does pose those limitations that the private sector might be able to thrive in, you know, having a free market might bring, you know, still we're having the protection of now more uh, industries that specialize in making sure if it be medicine or the food we eat is safe rather than having um, the government regulate this. And we see that when we do have a government, it's efficient in that, People now just focus on reaching that minimum to be able to, you know, maximize their profits. Yeah. And uh, I think a couple different related points. Things happen anyway. Salmonella outbreaks. It's like, oh, FDA, I thought you were protecting us. Why, why did we have this outbreak of uh, food-related illness or, or other things um, related to possibly medicines? And so, and then the, the next thing would be we tend to overlook private alternatives that might uh, serve the purpose um, potentially even better by having private organizations that can make some uh, certifications, either whether they're external or whether it's some sort of coalition of existing businesses. Um, there might be a number of different ways than relying on the central government um, to create another agency to protect us and, and in some cases give us a false sense of uh, security uh, than we might otherwise have. So, Brittany, you had uh, Capitalism Freedom Number 8, Chapter 8. So, we got into monopoly there and some corporate social responsibility. What, uh, what was Friedman stating in that chapter? Well, Chapter 8 was called Monopoly and Social Responsibility of Business and Labor. And Friedman opened up by talking about how competition basically naturally exists in a free market. And he criticized the unions and government assistance and the government just regulating a lot of things business-wise and saying they play a large part in monopolies. And just as much as they might try to protect the consumer, they end up protecting a lot of these business, which creates monopolies. And he says that government assistance and unions can, well, the government can pretty much sometimes end up giving special treatment to certain field, well, certain um certain components in the market and he talked a lot about corporations and giving and he was basically criticizing he said the removal of tax would be pretty much everything that solves everything with corporations because he doesn't believe that will corporations have any room to be giving because if you're getting taxed for something why do you need to give on top of that and that's not their role that they should be playing because if they are giving what would be shareholders money they should give it to the shareholders so that they have that ability to give yeah yeah it's uh, some interesting stuff on uh we kind of point to the big bad corporation but i think one of friedman's highlights is corporations really don't exist. People exist. And we need to kind of trickle things down to the people that are parts of these organizations. And so shareholders, the owners of those corporations, 
Uh, charitable giving, I think he would argue, really resides with individuals, um, not at the business level where too often the business leader, as uh, Rob Chatfield, the uh, CEO of Free to Choose Network this morning, he spent some time with us, uh, highlighted that uh, the leader of the organization might have their little pet project on giving and, and all of a sudden we're not getting as efficient results uh, with the corporation with lower prices and higher profits but more so that that giving component belongs at the individual level. And so I think Friedman makes some really compelling arguments there that maybe we'd be at a better place if we kept the focus on profits. And he's probably caught the most heat on this one over the years. I tend to still agree with him personally, and I'd be willing to to go to uh, the plate um, for it because I think he stands on pretty good logical uh, grounds here that a dual bottom line or a triple bottom line, these multiple objectives don't get us as good of an outcome as having uh, those sorts of activities uh, rest with individuals. The other distortion with the corporate income tax was the reinvesting. So there's, because they're taxed, there's an incentive for corporations to add another business, to reinvest funds um, because those are actually tax-free if they do it that way. And so are we really getting capital and money to the right place? So, all right, uh, Lynn, our last uh, last chapter, I should add, for what we covered. We didn't cover all of the chapters in the book, but uh, Colson, Capitalism, Freedom, uh, Chapter 9? Absolutely. So Chapter 9 is titled Occupational Licensure, <laughs> and it, it's a super interesting chapter. The, the thing I want to share first is that you might think licensure is just licensure. He actually breaks it down into three different levels of control that a, a government can have over an industry. So you have registration, which that would be like listing the, the different firearm shops that exist on uh, making them register. You could have registration, uh, certification, which this is certifying that an individual has skills, certain set of skills, but not excluding people who don't have that certification. And, and then he goes on to talk about licensing, which is requiring for someone to be in a certain field that they be licensed. And in that same order, uh, Friedman, Friedman is most opposed to licensing and the impediment that that is to uh, the free market and our economy. It's, uh, he actually compares it to, to a caste system and points out how the pressure that's on legislators to create these licenses that restrict people getting into industry, that pressure actually comes from the occupation, members of the occupation uh, themselves. It's usually not the consumers who ask the government to create these restrictions, but it's, say, the medical profession wanting to protect it be able to charge higher fees, create barriers to entry. They're the ones that ask the government to create those, those restrictions. And, and being in Arizona myself, uh, for law school, it's been interesting to watch Arizona take some leaps and, and make some changes. Our governor uh, has actually started to recognize out-of-state occupational licenses, which has taken down some barriers to entry. It's an, an initial step. And, and you might not know it, but whenever you go to get your hair cut, a lot of states require that they have uh, your hairdresser have a, a license to do that. And Arizona has started to allow um, people to blow dry shampoo and style hair without a license. And it was literally called the, the Blow Dryer Act or the, the Blow Dry Freedom Bill. Blow Dry Freedom. We demand blow dry freedom. <laughs> I, I just love exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. yes. So yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating chapter on how these, these things that we might think protect us at the end of the day, these, these licensure requirements would really better be handled by the free market. That certification, that can be done privately. Private organizations can certify individuals. And uh, today with Yelp or other, other forms of research, 
we as consumers don't need to know that a doctor is necessarily licensed. We would be able to go out and do our own research and say, okay, uh, Dr. ABC has some good reviews. I trust going to him. So that, so that was chapter nine, uh, and I would encourage you to go read it if, you, if you're inter- interested yourself. So that uh, kind of is a nice summary, and then look for any concluding remarks. I'll just add a, a couple things here that I think Friedman always wanted to challenge the status quo, that we shouldn't accept that um, we have to turn to further, if there's a problem, our first look is at the government. I think uh, the idea of looking to plan for competition is important and like when Colson made the uh, comment about free markets, of course, that's with our background that we've been studying for four years. But the listener, you might be saying, well, yeah, free markets, that's the problem. But, but we're really talking about better social outcomes. Many of this will help the poor um, more so than the rich. We have lower prices for food and gas and other um, important necessities. Um, those, all things, those are things that benefit the poor. Uh, proportionately more than the rich. And I think Friedman certainly had a concern that way. The other thing we talked about was caveat emptor. I think we're at a point where the buyer beware is a little easier. Uh, I think it was Brittany who pointed out that, you know, maybe we needed the government more so 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But now that we're all walking around with uh, worlds of information, including reviews, Um, there's less need for what Jonathan was going over with consumer protection. Um, We're well within our own to choose the level of risks that we want to take and to act accordingly. And so I think that was uh, Friedman's challenge to the, to the world um, back in 1962 with the first book, uh, Capitalism and Freedom. And then furthermore in uh, 1980 with the, with the free to choose episodes and an ultimate book that came about from that. So uh, Jeff, any uh, closing comments here from the free to choose uh, network side, uh, feel free to shamelessly promote things if you want. Yeah, no, uh, thanks Ross. Uh, so if you ever want to see any of our programs, including the original uh, free to choose 10 part series, it's all streaming free uh, right on our website, free to choose network.org. It's a fairly long URL, but uh, it's all free right on there. That includes the Sweden program, our most recent, A More or Less Perfect Union, which outlines the Constitution, all led by Judge Doug Ginsburg. It's really fun to watch that that three-part series and a a host of other things. And then lastly, uh, some shorter videos that are kind of easier to get through that many times are taken from some of those uh, public television pieces and other times made independently. And these are used in schools all throughout the country, thousands of students and thousands of teachers using these is our uh, educational wing called IZIT, that's I-Z-Z-I-T dot org. And again, has lots of streaming videos and is a a great resource. Yeah, great. Um, I'd like to thank uh, the donors who made this trip possible. Not going to name them, but donations from some very generous donors allowed uh, students to travel here to Vermont. Students, have you, has this been an all right experience for you? Most yeah, definitely. Like the view out there. Yes, it, it, it's been wonderful. So we've had uh, great food and, and great discussions and uh, learned a bunch here. And it was all due to uh, support from some donors that make this possible. So uh, that uh, came through the Gort Institute. And if uh, you feel so inclined to support efforts like that, you can contact me. We do have a donate button on our GortneyInstitute.org page. Other than that, this has been a production on behalf of the Gortney Institute and be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.